pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we have some big ideas and, and, and big moments in church history to think about and talk through this morning. And so uh, it being so early on a Monday, we ask you that you would give us uh, the in- energy we need to study these topics. Uh, we do this because we think it's important. We think that understanding your word correctly matters. Uh, we think it's beneficial to study the history of your church and your people and to learn from those who have come before us. We, we stand on the shoulders of the generations uh, that precede us, and we hope that we can look at the things that they taught and the things that they said, and we can glean truth and wisdom from that because we know that your Holy Spirit has always spoken to your people and illuminated your word to them. And so be with us this morning as, as we tackle some difficult issues and try to think deeply about the Trinity and the incarnation and the mystery of salvation. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So uh, the one that we're starting with this morning is the True God of True God page. Let me... There you go. All right. Um, Last week, we talked about how uh, the early Christian church experienced persecution at the hands of the Romans. Uh, You know, we get this first wave of persecution under the Emperor Nero, and then there's a period where it's kind of sporadic. It's not all the time. Uh, And and then as you get closer, um, you know, really closer to the 300 mark, the persecution really ramps up under Emperors Diocletian and and Decian. Uh, Diocletian will actually make Christianity illegal in the Roman Empire in 303, but then a decade later... You get a Christian emperor, and who was that? Constantinople. Uh, Constantine, right? Constantine, yeah, right. Yeah, Constantine. We get Constantine, the the Roman emperor, and uh, he's going to ascend to the throne. He's going to sign something called the Edict of Milan in three thirteen, and that doesn't make Christianity like the legal religion of the Roman Empire, but it makes it a legal religion. It's a tolerated religion. And so in 10 years, from 303 to 313, we've gone from Christianity is illegal, soldiers coming to your door and to your church and dragging you out and throwing you in prison and torturing you, maybe killing you, to there's a, there's a Roman emperor who's a Christian. And we also talked about how There were a couple of really big controversies under Constantine that really shook the church and how Constantine is really, uh, he, he really cares about these because he thinks Christianity is a unifying force for his empire, but you know, the Christian church uh, in these two controversies is threatening to crack apart and, and have a schism, have a division. And Constantine's bothered by that. He wants to make sure it doesn't happen because if the church divides, what else might divide? The empire. The empire, right? And, and so he, he's very concerned uh, to make sure that, that a schism, a division, doesn't happen in the Christian church. And so the first controversy we talked about was Donatism. And the Donatist controversy was, was a really big deal. Remember, uh, you know, under the emperor Decius, uh, Decius isn't killing Christians. What's he doing to them? He's torturing them, right? And uh, so you wind up with all of these Christians who, you know, maybe they withstood torture for a really long time, but eventually they crack. And now Constantine's come to the throne. These people want to come back into the church. They want to be accepted back into fellowship with other Christians. Some of them were pastors, and 
the church starts saying, well, well, yeah, it makes sense. You know, you were faithful to Jesus for four months under torture. And then you had one weak moment, you know, four months faithfully confessing Jesus one week moment. I mean, we have to show grace to these people. And so the church is accepting these people back. And Donatus says, you shouldn't do that. Because Jesus says, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. And Donatus says, if you cracked, you, you're not saved. Christ will deny you. And you definitely shouldn't be a pastor. And, and Donatus goes so far as to say that if one of these guys who lapsed is your pastor, you can't get any spiritual benefit from anything he does. If you get saved under him, guess what? You're not really saved. And if you get baptized by him, guess what? You're not really baptized. And if you get married by him, you're, you're not really married. And he ties grace to the minister in a, in a really tight way. We talked about how that's really problematic because can you see into people's hearts? Right? You can't. Someone could be deceiving you. Someone could be deceiving themselves into believing that they're a Christian. Um, And so, uh, you know, this was, a, this was a really, really big deal, this Donatus controversy, and, and Constantine will rule and exile these people. We talked about how last week the second really big controversy, the bigger one, was Arianism, all right? And that's the one that we want to start with today. Uh, we're going we're gonna to rehash this uh, quickly. Um, the Arian controversy, there's two main figures associated with this. Uh, one of them is a guy named Alexander, and Alexander was the bishop of the city of Alexandria in, in Egypt, so Alexander of Alexandria. And the other guy in this controversy was a fellow by the name of Arius, and you can see that Arian uh, comes from Arius's name, the Arian controversy, the Arian heresy. Uh, Alexander, do you remember what passage he was teaching on that started this? Psalms and Proverbs, Proverbs. 8, Yeah, it was in Proverbs 8 uh, about wisdom. And, uh, you know, Alexander was teaching on Proverbs 8. He saw wisdom as a, a, as a picture of Christ and uh, when wisdom speaks, Christ is speaking, and he interprets this passage to teach that the Son is co-eternal with the Father. He's one with the Father. Uh, Alexander is teaching what we know as the doctrine of the Trinity. And Arius is really upset about this. Arius doesn't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, I mentioned that there's an analogy that's often associated with Arianism. Arius himself didn't come up with it. But Arius taught something along these lines. He, he said the way to think about this uh, is, you guys remember the sun analogy from last week? All right, the sun is like who? Father. Yeah, this is like the father. And the sun gives off, uh, you know, it, it allows you to do two things. The first thing it does is it gives off light so that you can see. Now, is the light the sun? No. No. Which one's greater? The sun is. So he says the father is like the sun, S U N. The light is like the sun, S O N. All right? Uh, it's something that the father gives up, but it's, it's a creation of the sun. It's, it's lesser than the sun. And so, in the same way, uh, God the son is lesser than God the father. And then the sun also gives off heat. And he says the heat is kind of like who? The Holy Spirit. All right? Which is greater? 
the sun or the heat that it produces. The sun is. And, and so uh, the heat is a creation of the sun. And, and so the Holy Spirit is a creation of the Father. And it's lesser than the Father. You know, he teaches a hierarchy. You have the Father is greater than the Son, who is greater than the Holy Spirit. Well, the doctrine of the Trinity says that there's one God who eternally exists as three persons. The Father is not greater than the Son in, in the sense that Arius is saying. All three of them are co-equal, co-majestic, co-glorious. All of them are worthy of worship and worthy of praise. You know, who is really worthy of worship and praise, according to Arius? Do what? Who is? I said the Father. Yeah, the, the Father, right? He's worthy of the most worship and the most praise, and the Son is maybe should be honored, but definitely less, and the Holy Spirit, eh, you know. Right. So this is a, this is a big controversy, and um, originally, uh, Arius, there's going to be some local councils that say, hey, Arius, we think you're wrong, but he's going to start making a stink about this. He's going to start writing to church leaders throughout the Roman Empire, trying to garner support, and this is going to blow up into a really, really big controversy. Uh, in fact, this is really the first, we could say, really the first major doctrinal controversy in the church. Donatism sort of was, but it got swept under the rug pretty quickly by Constantine. It'll rear its ugly head again, as we talked about last week in the 360s. Uh, but this is really the first major one. And so on your outline, number one, in the year 325, Constantine is going to react to the Arian controversy. In 325, Constantine assembled the Council of Nicaea. Uh, that's a... Um, uh, a city in modern-day Turkey, all right? Uh, so 325, Constantine assembled the Council of Nicaea to discuss Arianism. The council would help the church formulate the doctrine of the Trinity, right? It's going to help the church formulate the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, here's a question for you. Does Nicaea invent the doctrine of the Trinity? No. How do you know that? Okay, what do you mean by that? That the, the doctrine of the Trinity existed long before the Council of Nicaea was established or anything. How do you know that? It's in the Bible. Okay, doctrine of the Trinity is biblical, so Nicaea is not inventing it because we, we would say that we can find it in Scripture. But is there a place in Scripture that you can open up and it, it, we have a chapter heading and it says the doctrine of the Trinity and then it explains it all to you? Uh, it doesn't really do that. Jesus has some discourses where he talks about it. Uh, but what do we have to do whenever we, we're trying to think about the doctrine of the Trinity? Is there just one passage we can go to and say, there it is, laid out for us? What do we have to do? Yeah, we've got to look all over the place and start bringing all of the relevant texts together. And, and, and it's going to take some time and it's going to take some work. And it's going to be something that, that we've really got to think through, right? Uh, so number one, we know that it... Nicaea didn't invent the Trinity because we, we would say that the Trinity is biblical. But um, how else do you know that? He was already yeah, Alexander was already teaching it prior to this controversy. So what the, uh, what the Council of Nicaea is going to do 
is it's going to help the church all come together and debate and talk and argue and look at text. And one guy says, this is what I think. And someone's going to say, well, this text kind of challenges that. Well, how do we reconcile all of these texts? How do we bring it together? It's going to give the church an, an ability to debate and discuss this. And it's going to help the church start talking about the Trinity with greater accuracy. All right. Uh, and so this is not an invention of the doctrine of the Trinity, but it, it's, a, it's a moment where people are able to really hammer out the ideas and really come to a consensus and really start to understand it with more precision. All right? Yep. And uh, again, this is going to happen in the year 325, and it's a reaction to the Arian controversy. Number two. One of the major figures at the Council of Nicaea was a guy by the name, oh, my marker's dying. His name is Athanasius. Athanasius. Uh, let me say really quickly, um, obviously we, we have limited time. Uh, Nicaea is a pretty complicated council. All right. There's a lot of different moving parts and a lot that's going on here. And so we're doing kind of the flyby sketch of it. Uh, just know that there is a, a lot of very interesting detail here. There's a lot of nuance that we can't really go into, but, but we're going to just kind of hit the most important parts of this. Uh, so, so number two, one of the major figures at the Council of Nicaea was Athanasius. Uh, he was born somewhere around 296. I should have a, a circa in front of that. It might be a little bit uh, before or a little bit after. Um, but what you need to know is that Athanasius was too young to be an official member of the council, but he served as a secretary and counselor for Alexander. So the guy that was teaching the doctrine of the Trinity that Arius was mad at, Athanasius is a, a secretary and a counselor under him. All right. Uh, Athanasius is very influential at the council. A lot of the things that Alexander actually says in defense of his views came from Athanasius. Right? So, um, you know, he's not really an official member of the council, but he's there. He's advising Alexander. And a lot of the really smart things that Alexander will say were actually Athanasius. All right. The reason that he couldn't be an official member of the council, by the way, is um, the reason I have 296 as his birth date, even though we don't know exactly when he was born, um, is uh, 296 is 29 years prior to the council. Uh, the early church would not allow a person to hold a church office until they were 30 years old. So pastor, priest, bishop, whatever it is, they wouldn't allow a person to hold any of those church offices until they were 30. There were two reasons for that. Number one, um, in the Old Testament, guess how old you had to be before you were a priest? Like 50 or 40? 30. Oh, wow. Right? You, uh, it's whenever you're, you're 30 and you serve until the end of your 50th year. So you serve for 21 years. Uh, how old was Jesus whenever he began his earthly ministry? 30. He was 30. Yeah. And so, um, you, you know, the uh, Gospel of Luke in chapter 3 tells you that, that he was 30 years old whenever he was baptized by John and started his earthly ministry. And so in order to follow that pattern, the early church would say you can't hold church office until you're 30 years old. We know that Athanasius was younger than that at Nicaea. That's why he can't be an official uh, 
member of the council. But again, he exerts a huge influence on the council. He, he helps Alexander defend the doctrine of the Trinity. He gives him am, am, kind of uh, mental ammunition against Arius. All right, number three, the council condemned Arianism and taught that God is one being that eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we talked about, I I put a chart up here last week uh, that looked like this. You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right, is the Father God? All right, so the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. How many gods do we worship? One. One. So God is one being. All right. Uh, Is the Father the Son? Right? Is the Son the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit the Father? All right, so he's one being who exists eternally in three persons. All right, this is what the Council of Nicaea finally formulates, finally lands on. And and again, we're doing our flyby sketch. There's a lot more detail that we could go into. There's some difficult vocabulary words that they use that we don't have time to really hash out. All right, Uh, but this is really basically what what they agree on here. All right, Uh, can you understand this all the way through? No. No. All right. It's something that's mysterious. It's something that we can't quite wrap our minds around all the way. Okay. Uh, but I told you last week that one of the things that we see throughout church history is that there are ideas that the scriptures call us to hold in tension. Does the Bible teach that there's only one God? Does the Bible teach that Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all God? And does the Bible teach that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father? Yes. All right. Now, if the Bible teaches all those things, even if we can't wrap our mind all the way around it, as Bible-believing Christians, guess what we have to believe? Yeah, all of that stuff. Right? Now, Arianism is much simpler, which is why it had a lot of appeal. A lot of people liked Arius and liked his ideas because it was simple and they could understand it and they could wrap their minds around it. Uh, Arius would uh, write hymns that people at the Council of Nicaea, people that were mad about the ruling of Nicaea, are standing outside the door singing Arian, uh, Arius's hymns. And, and the hymns are simple. The hymns present a, an idea that's much less complex than this. The Father made the Son, and the Son is kind of the greatest creature that there is, and then he also made the Holy Spirit, who's a little bit less than the Son, but is also a really great, powerful creature. It's much simpler, right? And so it appealed to a lot of people. But I told you last week, heresy always does something. Heresy always takes something mysterious in the Christian faith and makes it make sense. Whereas if we want to be faithful to Scripture, sometimes we just have to admit that God is too big for us to comprehend. And the works of God are too marvelous to fully comprehend. And what the church has always said is that that should lead us to worship. If you could fully understand God, what does that say about God? He's not very big. Because is your mind very big? No, not really. You're a fallen, finite human being. If you can wrap your mind all the way around God, that says something pretty negative about his glory. Right? 
Yeah, I think that's really true, and I think the the church uh, the church has agreed on that, you know, throughout its history. And so, uh, you know, even though we can't understand this all the way through, and, and Nicaea will actually say it's an incomprehensible mystery. So, if you don't understand the Trinity, guess what? You're in good company, and you're probably actually understanding it the way that you should. Right? It's an incomprehensible mystery. All right, but it's something that we are called to hold to and believe because it's something that the scriptures presents right number four after the council of nicaea arius was exiled he's a troubler of the church he's causing schism and division so constantine says you need to leave the roman empire now uh before we go further into that point let me mention that this actually causes some some really bad issues for the roman empire because arius is a very good evangelist so he gets kicked out of the roman empire And there are barbarian groups that exist in Europe. And he goes and he evangelizes all of them. And they start holding to Arianism. And guess who eventually is going to sack Rome in about, I don't know, 100 years? Barbarians. Barbarians, who are also Arians. Arian barbarians. That's kind of fun to say, right? So so this kind of comes back to to bite Constantine. Um, you know, he's dead by that point, but, but it comes back to bite the Roman Empire. But number four, Arius was exiled, but Constantine later expressed sympathy toward Arius. Maybe we were too hard on him. He, you know, he was wrong, but he was sharing his ideas because he thought it was right and he was trying to benefit the church. You know, he's, tr- he's trying to teach what he thinks is good doctrine. And, and I kicked him out of the Roman Empire. Maybe that was too harsh of me. So, he decides to bring Arius back from exile. By this point, Alexander, the bishop of Alexandria, is dead. And Athanasius has replaced him. Athanasius is now the leader of the Alexandrian church. And Constantine commands him to give Arius a teaching position in the church. This guy doesn't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. Constantine says you need to give him a position where he can teach in the church and share his ideas. And Athanasius said no. Constantine and his successors, who also were pretty sympathetic to Arianism. and In fact, um, Constantine's son, Constantius II, all of Constantine's kids are named after him in some way. There is a Constantine II, there's a Constantius II, uh, who's named after his father. He, he also has a daughter and names her something along the lines of Constantine. I don't remember how he makes it feminine. Uh, but Constantius II, who becomes emperor after Constantine, is a full-blown Arian. So the Council of Nicaea is meant to squash this problem. It doesn't, right? So Constantine and his successors would exile Athanasius on five occasions because of his rigorous opposition to Arianism. Athanasius would stand against Roman emperors and would say, I don't believe that this teaching is in accordance with scripture. I'm not going to give these people teaching positions in the church where they can lead people astray, and he'd be exiled on five occasions for it. They eventually invite him back. So the same way that, uh, you know, Constantine exiles Arius 
and then says, oh, well, I changed my mind and, and bring him back. Uh, same thing will happen with Athanasius on, on five occasions. They do. Um, I don't, it's hard to really piece together uh, a good biography of Athanasius's life. It does seem like they attempt his life on two occasions and he escapes. Uh, but five times he is exiled and, and will be brought back. But um, we get an interesting phrase from this. Uh, during this time when he's exiled and brought back and exiled and brought back, Arianism starts to really look like the majority report in the church. It starts growing exponentially uh, because it has the support of the empire behind it. And, um, we get a phrase, Athanasius contra mundum, which is Latin for Athanasius against the world. He stands against, uh, you know, several church leaders, against several emperors. Uh, he stands against them uh, on the truth of, of the scriptures and defends the doctrine of the Trinity against a world of opposition. Well, why does he do that? Number five. For Athanasius, Arianism was not a theological trifle. All right, what do I mean by that? Um, is all of God's word important? Yes. Are there things that we can just agree to disagree on, though? There are. All right. There are things, are, are there things in God's word that are very hard to interpret? And in good conscience, Christians can kind of land two different places, but they can still be in fellowship with each other, right? Yeah, all right. It wouldn't be good to, to divide over really, really small things, okay? For Athanasius, though, this was a big deal. It wasn't just head-in-the-clouds theology. This was an enormous, enormously important Topic And so uh, in that point, it's not just a theological trifle. Instead, he believed that Arianism attacked the heart of the gospel message. Even when he was in the minority, Athanasius stood, contra mundum, and helped the church reject the Arian heresy. All right. So that point there says he felt like it attacked the heart of the gospel message. Um, I want to break from the outline for a few minutes and give you seven reasons that Athanasius saw Arianism as a really big deal. All right? Uh, if you have Bibles, I'm going to get some of you guys uh, to flip to a few passages. Um, I'm going to put the passages over here, and then I'll, I'll kind of put the, the, the bullet points off to the side. So I need somebody to open uh, and read Psalm 49. 7 through 9, oops, uh, 7 through 9, and then verse 15. Uh, Matthew 9, 1 through 8. Uh, John 10, 30. Matthew 1, 22 through 23. Jonah 210, uh, Mark 1, 2 through 3, Isaiah 45, 5. All right. 
this will take a few minutes, but I think it's important for us to highlight in Athanasius' thinking, why is Arianism so offensive? Why is it such a big deal? Why is it an attack on the heart of the gospel? Uh, who has the Psalm 49 passage for us? All right, will you read it for us? None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever, that he should still live forever and not see corruption. And then verse 15. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Selah. So in those first few verses that Jack read for us, did you notice that it said, no man can redeem another's life? What, what verse says that specifically? Verse 7. Uh, verse 7 of Psalm 49. No man can redeem another man's life. Now tell me what's interesting about that verse. No man can redeem another man's life. Jesus is a man, and we think at the heart of the Christian message is the good news that he's done what? Yeah, redeemed our lives. All right? No man can redeem another man's life. But in verse 15, who does uh, the author say has redeemed his life? God. God. God has redeemed my life. So, number one, why is Arianism such a big deal for Athanasius? Well, he's looking at that. And he's saying, can a mere human being pay the infinite weight of sin? Pay the price of an infinite weight of sin? Can a mere human being do that? No. no. Who is the only one who can pay an infinite price? God. God. So, all right, number one, Arianism says that Jesus is not fully God. He's a lesser God. He is a finite creature. He was made by the Father. He had a beginning. He's not eternal. Number one, he would say, how could he pay the infinite price of, infinite price of sin? If that's true. If Arianism is true and he's just a creature, if he's just made, if he's not eternal, how can he pay the infinite price of sin? Uh, number two, who's got Matthew 9? Somebody got Matthew 9 for us? In that text, Jesus looks at the paralytic, and before he heals him, what does he say? Your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees say what in response? Yeah, he's blaspheming because only God can forgive sins. 
Okay, is it true that only God can forgive sins? So who was Jesus claiming to be in that text? God. All right. If Arianism is true, Athanasius would ask the question, how can Jesus forgive sins? And the answer would be what? He can't unless he's God. All right. Uh, number three, who has John 10.30 for us? Go for it. I and my father are one. All right. That was short and sweet. So, do what? So that was short and sweet. Yeah, that's short and sweet. All right. If Arianism is true, are, if Arianism is true, is the son one with the father? Well, you've got the father and he made the son. He created the son. So they're two totally separate beings. All right. So how can Jesus say, and I'm just going to put here John 10, 30, I and the Father have won. How can he do that if, if Arianism is true? All right? And this is a big deal because it's calling into question the truthfulness of Jesus' words. Do we need Jesus to tell the truth? Yeah. yeah, that's a really big deal. And Athanasius would say Arianism makes him into a liar. All right. Uh, who's got the Matthew passage for us? All right. Uh, in that passage, what does it call Jesus? What name does it give him? It gives him the name Emmanuel. And what does that mean? God with us. God with us. So somebody anticipate. What question is Athanasius going to ask Arius? If Arianism is true. How can we, how can we call him that? Like, how yeah. is that true? How can you call him Emmanuel? He's not really God with us, right? He's a created being, you know, the first being that God created, and he's with us, but how can he be called Emmanuel? All right, uh, the next one, uh, Jonah 2.10 says what? Does anybody have it? If yeah. You have it? Yeah, read it. <clears throat> and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited oh. Jonah out, of, out upon the dry land. I have the wrong, I have the wrong verse. What's the verse right before that? Verse Two, nine. Four, Sorry about that. I was like, how was he going to tie this into this? No, no, I wasn't. <laughs> but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Wait a minute. Salvation belongs to who? The Lord. Who saves? Who gives salvation? The Lord. The Lord. And is that... Uh, you guys know that there's a difference in your Bibles between this and this. Whenever it's all caps, what, what is that? Yahweh. Yeah, that's Yahweh. You know, God's covenant name uh, he gives in the burning bush, right? Uh, and it's this one in Jonah 2.9. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Salvation belongs to the God of the Old Testament. So what question is Athanasius going to ask? If Arianism is true, who does salvation actually belong to? Well, if Arianism is true, does it belong to Yahweh? Like Jonah says? Or does it belong to this being that he created, Jesus? Who does salvation come from? Right? And, and, you know, is it actually of the Lord? Or is it of this thing, this creature, this creation? 
all right? So he would ask the question, if Arianism is true, is salvation actually from God? Or is it from, you know, the, the lesser being, the son, the, the lesser being? Right? You're starting to see why Athanasius thinks this is a big deal. He, this is why he thinks the doctrine of the Trinity is, is so important. These questions are really striking at the heart of the gospel. Uh, number six, um, let me actually just explain um, number six. Um, Mark 1, verses 2 and 3. Does somebody have that that can read it really briefly? Yes. Go ahead. As it is as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. All right. Um, Mark 1, 2, and 3 is just one example of this. We could give 20, 30 examples of this. Mark 1, 2, and 3 quotes from Malachi 3, 1 and Isaiah 40, verse 3. And what these verses are saying is, uh, if, you, if you look at them in the Old Testament, what they're saying is that one day the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which means this is talking about Yahweh, um, the Lord is going to visit his people. But before the Lord comes, he's going to send a messenger that prepares the way. And so the Lord is coming, but first he's going to send a messenger. Uh, and who is that messenger according to the New Testament? John the Baptist. All right, that's John the Baptist. So the Lord is coming to visit his people. He's going to send a messenger first, John the Baptist. And then who is going to come according to the text? He's making the way straight for Yahweh. Yahweh. In the Old Testament, if you look at Malachi 3, 1, and Isaiah 4, 30, 40, 30, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's Yahweh there. It's capital L-O-R-D. All right? So according to those texts, who is coming? Yahweh. According to the New Testament, who came? Yahweh. Okay, Yahweh. But in, who do you see? You see Jesus. So for these verses to be true, Yahweh has to be the same as Jesus. All right, so number six, and, and by the way, um, you know, throughout John's gospel as well, you, you know that um, uh, Jesus has these seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the door, things like this. He's taking Yahweh's name and applying it to himself, right? Uh, that's, that's what he's doing in those. So the, the number six one uh, is the New Testament equates Jesus with Yahweh so he would ask the question, if Arianism is true, uh, does the New Testament accurately use the Old Testament? All right? The, the New Testament makes this equation. Could Arius make that equation? No. So, if Arianism is true, is the New Testament accurately using the Old Testament, or is it wrong? It is, is the scripture contradicting itself? Right? Do we need the scripture to be trustworthy? Yeah. Right? We need the scriptures to be trustworthy. Right? And then number seven. Um, who's got Isaiah 45.5? Josh, will you read it? I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God beside me. 
I will gird you, though you have you, not. You can stop right there. I am the Lord, there is no other. There is what? No other God beside me. Could Arianism say that? Because Arianism says that God the Father created a totally separate being called God the Son, and then created a totally separate being called God the Holy Spirit. How many gods? Three. So, Arianism, is it monotheistic or polytheistic? Polytheistic. Which means that it's contradicting what Josh just read. Because Isaiah 45.5 says, I am the Lord and there is no other God. It teaches monotheism. Alright? So, uh, again, you know, you've got a place where Arianism is going against the scriptures. Uh, you know, is Arianism calling us to believe in Christian polytheism? And, you know, I'm going to put in scare quotes Christian right there, because is there such a thing as Christian polytheism? No. So hopefully you see from this why Athanasius thinks this is really striking at the heart of the gospel. All right, let's keep going. Number six. Uh, Number six. Though teaching that the Holy Spirit was fully God, the Council of Nicaea focused mostly on the Son, S-O-N. God the Son. In 381, the Council of Constantinople... Who do you think that's named after? Constantine. Constantine. All right. In 381, the Council of Constantinople, which is the second ecumenical council after uh, Nicaea is the first and then Constantinople is the second. What, what does ecumenical mean, by the way? All-inclusive. Yeah, all-inclusive or worldwide, right? This is, a, this is Christians from all uh, throughout the Christian world gathering together to debate this. So Nicaea is, isn't just Christians in one area. It's Christians from all over. Constantinople does the same thing. It's the second council that does that. So in 381, the Council of Constantinople was called and influenced by the powerful teaching of Gregory of Nyssa a few years earlier, uh, the council strengthened the church's position regarding the divinity of the Holy Spirit. All right, Nicaea teaches that the Holy Spirit is fully God. Uh, Constantinople really focuses on that point and really strengthens that point and, and really uh, articulates it with even greater precision. Um, Gregory of, of Nyssa that's mentioned there uh, is not alive during the Council of Constantinople, but they use his writings and he is the main influence at that council. Uh, he wrote a book called On the Holy Spirit, uh, which I would suggest you all read if you're really into this stuff. I think it's fantastic, and it's actually pretty pretty readable. Athanasius is too, by the way. Uh, his big work is called On the Incarnation. Uh, I read it for the first time whenever I was younger than most of you guys. It's incredibly readable. Uh, there's an introductory essay by C.S. Lewis uh, where uh, he, he kind of makes that point and um, encourages you to, to read Athanasius. But Athanasius on the Incarnation and, and Gregory of Nyssa on the Holy Spirit. Um, Gregory of Nyssa, just really quickly, uh, what are some of the main points that, that he makes about the Holy Spirit? Uh, well, number one, uh, to argue that the Holy Spirit is fully God a- along with the Father and the Son, uh, he quotes Matthew twenty-eight nineteen through 20, Jesus' great commission. And Gregory makes a really astute observation that Jesus says, go into all nations and baptize them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
How many names? One. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all share one name. Right? Go and baptize them into the singular name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so you see that all three of them have a oneness. The Holy Spirit is included along with the Father and the Son. If the Father and Son are God, what does that necessarily mean about the Spirit based on that text then? He's, he's fully God. Uh, Gregory will also point out that the Spirit is eternal. Uh, he's with God at the creation of the world in Genesis 1-2. He points out that in Genesis chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is the one that gives life to Adam in Ezekiel 37. You guys know the story of the Valley of Dry Bones where Ezekiel goes and preaches to the corpse, right? Ezekiel's preaching doesn't do anything until what happens? Holy Spirit moves. And so Genesis 2 and Ezekiel 37, the Holy Spirit gives life. Well, giving life is a God thing throughout the scripture. So if the Spirit gives life, it shows he is God. Um, He also spends a lot of time talking about the personhood of the Spirit, that the Spirit isn't a force. The Spirit is a person. Uh, The Spirit is not an it. The Spirit is a he. And he'll highlight that Jesus speaks of the Spirit uh, using he and him throughout the Gospel of John. He'll point out that the Spirit does personal things like teaches us and comforts us and counsels us and leads us into truth. And so the Council of Constantinople will establish the divinity of the Holy Spirit and the personhood of the Holy Spirit in greater detail. Uh, Number seven Nicaea and Constantinople focused on the doctrine of the Trinity. In 451, the Council of Chalcedon, Chalcedon, uh, which is the fourth ecumenical council, would focus on the other great Christian doctrine, which is the incarnation. What, what does the incarnation mean? Yeah, when God became a man, when God the Son took on human uh, flesh in in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, If you know Spanish, carne means meat. And so the, you can literally translate it, the in-meeting of God, right? Uh, God in meat, God in flesh. Um, God becomes a man. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. So Council of Chalcedon in 451 uh, is going to hash out the incarnation. Uh, Number eight, at Chalcedon, several heresies that did not account for the full uh, deity or the full humanity of Christ were condemned. Uh, With the help of Pope Leo the Great, the church taught that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Um, Chalcedon is a very long council. Uh, It mainly is taking place in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, and no one can quite figure out how to land on the doctrine of the Incarnation. Uh, Leo the Great, who is the leader of the church in Rome at the time, um, writes something that is called his tome. So the tome of Leo, and sends it to the council, and then basically everyone is like, oh yeah, this is right, and they accept it. That's a gross simplification, but that's about all we have time for. Um, But in the tome, uh, Leo teaches um, the the phrase from Chalcedon. You know, the the phrase on the Trinity is one being uh, in three persons. Uh, At Chalcedon, to talk about the incarnation, it's that Jesus has two natures 
uh, in one person. Right. Uh, we have an entire 15-minute lesson on this in my regular church history class. Uh, basically what this means, though, is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He has both those natures, but there's not two Jesuses. There's one Jesus, right? Uh, it's not that he has two computer screens in front of him, and sometimes he's looking at the God one and sometimes at the man one. It's that throughout his entire life, he is fully God and fully man. So can you say, talking about Jesus, that God wept? Well, weeping is a human thing to do, but Jesus is the God-man, so in the person of Jesus Christ, did God weep? Yeah, right? So, uh, you know, you can uh, kind of hash that out further in your own time. Um, You know, sometimes we say Jesus is 200%. He's 100% God, 100% man, and that's following from Leo's statement there. Um, Number nine... Uh, to finish this up, if Christ is not fully God, then questions are raised about how salvation is possible, since salvation comes from the Lord, and that should be Jonah 2.9 instead of Jonah 2.10. And number 10, uh, if Christ is not fully man, then the same questions are raised since, and then there's a quote there, what is not assumed cannot be saved. Um we're going to talk about number 10 a little bit after we take our break. Uh, so we'll go ahead and call it quits there, and then I'll, I'll talk about what that last statement on number 10 means before we get into the next lesson. But uh, let's, take, let's take a 10-minute break.